Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. Listen, guys, this week's guest is a really cool woman. She is the founder and creative director of Noel Collective. She's based in Ramallah, Palestine. Welcome to the show, Yasmin Imjelli. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Me and Yasmin have been trying to record this. How many times did we try recording this this episode? How many times did we reschedule? I think this is the fourth time. Is I could be wrong. I think it's I the think this time. is the fourth time. One time she did spill tea on her keyboard, which uh, that in itself was crazy that that happened. Just to yeah. like that's never happened in my recording. Like things happen, you know. But like spilling tea on a laptop, I will say it was a very Palestinian thing for you to do. Oh my god! And it was red tea. <laughs> it was Lipton. Of course, of course. Um, and yeah, we were just chatting about like how weirdly enough, as we're recording right now, it feels like this was the this was the right thing. Like it was meant to be the fifth time. Hmm. Yeah. Something it is w- different about today. Something is different about today. We're both kind of, I think, in vulnerable transitional spots in our lives. And it's just we're on the same frequency, which is very weird because mm-hmm. I feel like it's, I don't know, it's just, it's it's very different. It's a different feeling than I've ever had recording with anyone, which is cool I and fun. I agree. Yeah. yeah. We're both transitioning and we're both very emotional, not emotional. I want to say vulnerable. Yes. And open and yes. reflective and hopeful. This is a it's good so weird. It's so yeah. weird. Okay. But let's, let's, I want to, I want to make sure everyone gets to know you. I also want to get to know you a little bit better because I have followed you on Instagram. I did a deep dive on you on the internet. And let me say there is just so, this woman has done so many amazing things, but, um, I want to start from the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born in La Jolla, California. I would say I was actually raised between North Carolina and uh, Tubas, which is my village here in Palestine. I, I, my parents took us back and forth every single year. So that's really nice. Honestly, I would. I remember growing up seeing or like knowing kids who like their parents would take them to like the homeland. They would take them to Palestine mm-hmm. every summer. And I was Mm -hmm. kind of like sad that my parents never did that. And I didn't fully Mm -hmm. understand that it's because like specifically for Gaza, it is difficult to do Mm -hmm. that. So like Mm -hmm. that was a huge factor. But obviously at the time when you're little, like you don't fucking understand these things, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no Um, idea. That's what I'm saying. Like I, you, you don't fully understand like why you know that it's there's, I guess when you're younger, you're like, okay, there's like some type of war or something is happening there something is going on, but you don't really understand like the the details and the nuances of it. But um, mm. so you, you lived in North Carolina, which I've been to before. It's a very, it's a very white place. That's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yes. And I definitely attended. Um, I lived in a white place and I attended a very white uh, school district. It was, my schools were always like 96% white minimum. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the Arab kids, I mean, I could count them probably on two hands. And it was a yeah. school of like 2,000 plus kids. <laughs> that, that's, that's actually insane. And 
I mean, but yeah, I mean, my sister lived there for a few years and every time I would visit, it was just, it was very different than a lot of places I've been to, even within the United States in that it was so primarily, the population was very white. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure there are areas where, you know, there's more diversity, but like, I feel like in Charlotte and in the larger cities and stuff, like it is very much so dominated by a white population. And mm -hmm. what was growing up, surrounded by primarily white people like for you? I mean, I think like most people living in the States to some degree understand what that's like, but I feel like it's a little bit more condensed where you lived. Yeah. I, I have a really hard time talking about this because I think that I haven't fully come to terms with my childhood. Um, but it was really difficult for me. I, I, you know, what's crazy. I, I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but I, as a child, I didn't even know that I wasn't white because yeah. as a child, you just assume that you look like everyone around you. And I sounded like them and we went to the same school and we wore the same clothes. And I just, it never even occurred to me that I wasn't white um, until I, I started like getting closer to my like preteen years. and then at some point it's undeniable. Then at some point you, all you experience, I felt like was the racism, you know, like the older you get, I feel like maybe kids are more cruel. They start noticing those differences and suddenly you do everything you can to minimize them. So I was doing everything I could to be as white as I could so that I was not the target of any of that racist bullying. But it I was, think it was, yeah. No, Sorry, I think that's, that's really, that is a shared experience that I feel like a lot of Arabs living in America who, you know, have like a lighter complexion. That is, mm -hmm. a, I think a pretty common experience. Cause I know that I didn't fully realize, I mean, I think that I knew that I wasn't white, but I didn't feel as different as maybe I would have if I had a different skin color. Cause I feel mm. like even, even as a child, I was able to recognize that. Unfortunately, I was still treated differently because of the mm. color of my skin. And mm. I, I knew that we were slightly different. And the only reason I knew that is because they could eat pork and I couldn't eat pork. Oh, like I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm being serious. Like that was a big part of me realizing that I'm different than you because you are allowed to eat pork and I am not allowed to eat pork. And that was a big conversation in the cafeteria. Like people had a lot of questions like, so you can't eat pepperoni pizza? And I'm like, no, I can't. <laughs> and then like, and like a six-year-old me explaining, explaining why I can't eat pork. I'm like, well, it's, it's, it's haram. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't <laughs> fucking know how to explain this to you. But that was what made me realize that there is a difference but mm -hmm. it was still a little blurry. Like I didn't feel that different. I just knew I was slightly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. And you know, it's so funny. I totally forgot about this pork thing. I had, my parents had this, um, I guess, conversation with the school so that when I went to check out every day at lunch in the cafeteria, as soon as I put my ID in, the lunch lady was forced to check my tray to make sure there was not a single pork item on it. And if there was, if I had something that other kids were grabbing, I just thought it was a sandwich or whatever, she would take it off and be like, go get something else. 
And I totally forgot about that. Yeah, that's true. No, that my parents also did the same thing. And the lunch lady would frequently <laughs> tell me, sorry, Noor, you can't have the corn dog today. It's not a beef <laughs> corn dog. It's a pork corn dog. And I was like, fuck. I mean, I didn't say fuck, but I was definitely upset about it in my own little, in my own little child way. But that to me, like, it was such a, like, it's so crazy, like how, how much of a topic it was for even my second grade class where at the lunch table, there would just be this. And I remember there was another Muslim boy in my class who his parents also didn't let him eat fruit gushers because they had gelatin in them. My parents didn't give a fuck. I, mm-hmm. they let me eat fruit gushers. They weren't, they weren't, you know, that, that worried about gelatin in that way. Like I ate Lucky Charms. I still eat Lucky Charms. I'll say it, whatever, <laughs> fight me. Um, but it's just, it was even a topic of debate because the boy in my class was like, you can't eat that. It has gelatin in it. And I'd be like, well, my mom said I could eat it. And then the kids around us would be like, well, why can you eat it? And he won't eat. Like, you know what I mean? And and even that, that it was just this weird discrimination. And I remember a girl one time actually sitting next, who used to sit next to me at lunch saying, I don't want to sit next to you because we can't, we can't swap things anymore. Oh my gosh. Because when my parents told the lunch lady like that, I wasn't allowed to eat pork. They also made it a point that I wasn't allowed to share with anyone else because they might be eating a pork product. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I was also so and I'm and like now that I think about it, I'm like, oh my god, that's discrimination. She didn't yeah. want to sit next to me because I don't yeah. eat pork. What a uh. bitch! I don't know what her name was, but fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I know the name of like every child in elementary school and middle school. I'm coming after you, Meredith. <laughs> fuck you, Meredith. All your <laughs> Meredith, oh, you bitch. Yeah. I oh mean, honestly, gosh. it's it's it is a and I think that's why like it's especially if you weren't raised around other Arabs, mm. when you grow up and you meet other Arabs who were raised in America or Canada or any of these countries, like you re- you realize that there are so many similarities and shared experiences that mm. you felt so at the time felt so alone in them, felt so isolated, oh, felt yeah. like no one else is going through this except for me. Oh, yeah. And that's exactly, I guess, how it felt. It is such a singular experience. Like you're mm-hmm. out there fending for yourself and you're not even sure why it's happening. Yes. You're not. And you know what's crazy? At such a young age, you don't have the understanding. Like you're not equipped with the understanding to be able to really defend yourself. You just, at least I didn't. I, was it, I remember experiencing all those things and I didn't know why I was like why all we were different and I didn't know that I could that I could defend it um I just sort of let it happen because I didn't understand and that's such a that was that's what it was like growing up as a child of Muslim Palestinian immigrants in in North Carolina and I'm sure that's the same case for so many people And I think that, like, it's a huge issue for so many people. It's also because it's not really talked about. And I think the Mm -hmm. reason it's not talked about is because, and I know a lot of other Arabs probably feel this way, but specifically more so for, like, Palestinian diaspora, like, my parents were never relaxed. 
You know what Mm. I mean? Like my parents were always kind of stressed out. And I think that a lot of Palestinian kids felt that way about their parents because, you know, they have their normal stressors of just general life, right? You know, you're you're an adult, you have responsibilities. That in itself is such a huge stressor. But then there's Mm. this added layer where like they're constantly in contact with their family who is still in Palestine or are refugees in other places. And it's always this constant stressor in their life. It's this constant added layer where maybe normal parents might be able to, or not normal parents, but like parents who don't have this extra unique stressor are able to notice these things and address them. But because of these layers, the way they prioritize things is a lot different, I think. But I think that's also to be said for so many children of immigrants, first generation Americans, where their parents just prioritize such different thing where like them asking like, hey, are you fitting in at school? Okay. (laughs) Never. That was not a question that anyone ever fucking asked me. I mean, I can't imagine my mom and dad would ever ask that because if they were, the it would only be to make sure that I wasn't because their worst nightmare was that we would assimilate. They, it's, it's ironic, but I think Mm -hmm. that I don't know if this is the case for everyone, but my parents moved to the U.S. to give us, obviously, a better chance at a better future. But at the same time, they were terrified that we Mm -hmm. would assimilate, lose our Palestinian values, Mm -hmm. our Muslim values, and then become, quote unquote, American. And... That they had, they were on edge. They had their guard up. I grew up with a in an extremely tough, very conservative, traditional household. And my parents, like you said, they were on edge. Like they mm-hmm. they had these walls up, um, doing their best to make sure mm-hmm. that we we weren't lost, as they saw yes. that that we they we weren't losing who we were. It's so wild because even the word lost that that is a word that was used a lot of the time Mm. with my parents. And even till this day, like I am a grown woman and my dad (laughs) will frequently tell me, I don't like when you behave in this American way, or Mm. I don't want you to behave in this American way. I don't want you to be lost. Mm. I don't want you to, to uh, assimilate. Like they don't want you to assimilate too much and in complete candor, as an adult, I appreciate that now. I am glad. I am glad that they made it a point for me to be 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 comfortable being not this being different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be comfortable. I don't even know that that was what they were thinking, but I think that <laughs> indirectly that's what they did where I was more comfortable standing out and being different and, and, and eating different food and doing things differently. Like in a way them constantly saying that to me, even though as a child, I found it to be very annoying. Cause I was like, well then why the fuck did you move to America? If you don't want me to be American, Ugh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like if you didn't want yeah. me to behave in this Western way, why did you bring me here? But like you said, they, they didn't, again, you can't fully appreciate this until you're older, but like, I, my parents would have gladly just lived the rest of their life in Palestine, Mm. you know, but they, they, this is where they ended up. Yeah. 
You know, whenever people ask me where am I from, I always say America. Like I I, yes. I feel sorry to yeah. be honest to an extent that I was raised here. I always I mean I wonder like what it would be like if I was raised here, you know? Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure you know this or you've heard this if you've not felt it, that you know, you come to the motherland and there's always some barrier between you and your own people. Yes. And that's the thing, like no matter how well I feel like I speak Arabic or anything, when I'm communicating with my family who lives in Palestine, there is this very different life experience that we both have Mm. that makes it, like you said, it's a barrier in a way where we can't fully understand each other's experiences because the issues that I have are very much so different than the issues that they face. Mm -hmm. And I would even argue like my issues generally seem very silly and trivial compared to the experiences of my family who lives in Gaza. Mm -hmm. Um, And And, you know, I've talked a lot about survivor's guilt and all of that, but it's survivor's guilt aside, it's like objectively speaking, their issues are just not the same. And although we have similar issues, on top of those similar issues we have, they have this added layer of issues because they're living under Israeli occupation and Israeli control and like, you know, all of these things that create so many more hardships in their life that I have never experienced and, and cannot fully understand what that, how that takes a toll and how that manifests in Mm. other aspects of your life. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was talking with, with a friend of mine maybe yesterday or two days ago and we brought up there was some debate that we were having um about this recent um like controversy in the music world here in Palestine that came up and so we were discussing the reaction to the controversy and we noticed that the reaction varied based on actually where what your Palestinian identity was and I mean whether you were from Gaza, you had one reaction. If you were from Dafa, if you were from Dachel 48, or if you were diaspora, there were very, like, everyone drew the line in a very different place. So it's actually interesting. I mean, it's not even just diaspora versus Palestine. It's even in Palestine, there are, like, this, it's like a fragmented, um, fragments of shared experiences so even coming here like as a dafawiya i i know i'm i'm i know what you're referring to even talking to people from dakhil or even talking to people from from Gaza. like when i like you talked to mira adnan a few episodes back hearing her speak about her experiences that's even a difficult bridge for anyone from dafa to or a difficult gap to bridge from anyone from dafa it's it's so crazy. It's that's and and that's something that I think you know again you don't realize until you start speaking to people and mm. you realize that 
although we do have so many shared experiences, there are still these huge differences in just the way we view our day-to-day life and just the way we live and the way we Mm. exist. And that all affects all of these other aspects of, you know, your everyday emotions and tasks and relationships and stuff like that. And I think that it's, it's so nice though, that at the end of the day, we all still have this very unifying connection to Palestine, mm. regar- mm. regardless of where we live or where, if, if we've ever lived in Palestine, I know people who've never even stepped foot in Palestine mm-hmm. who feel a deep connection. And it, it's this undeniable feeling of, we were talking about this earlier. It's like, sometimes when you know that something is right, you can feel it. And it's, it's not even something you can like fully articulate or understand why it feels right. You just know it feels right. And Palestine to me is that it just always feels like, no, like this, this is my parents' land. Like this is where I feel most connected to, even though I've never lived there. Mm-hmm. And I just, but I just know it and I feel it so deeply. And, and it's not even in a romantic way. It's not even in a way where I'm like, oh, Palestine is perfect. And all Palestinians are amazing. It's not even in that way. It's more so like, this is just where I think I'm most connected to. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't deny that. And I know it to be true. And it's very yeah. weird to even say out loud because it's like, it just sounds kind of crazy. Oh, I know what you mean. No, I know what you mean. I used to I used to think until quite recently that my my life in Palestine started when I physically moved here, but I I don't know how I started thinking like this, but I started thinking back to my childhood memories in North Carolina and my mother did her absolute best to give us indirect connections to her, like Palestine. And she is very Palestinian. Like my mom was born and raised in Tubas and then, you know, up and moved to the U.S. after she got married. So she never, ever assimilated and just was like, I'm going to be my Palestinian self and you're going to love it or you're not, but I'm not changing. And so we grew up eating traditional Palestinian dishes. We grew up in the car listening to Fairuz, um, and and we would get so mad because we wanted to hear like Lady Gaga or whatever. And, and so I had just forgotten all of that because I always used to get so angry. I'd tell her like, mom, why can't you make meatloaf? Like, why can't you be like the other kids' moms? And why can't you play the radio? I want to hear the latest songs that everyone at school is listening to. And, and Haram, she was such a good mom. She always did try and do some things like that for us. But the line stretched all the way back to those moments as a child that I wasn't necessarily conscious of until now. And it feels like now that I'm back here, something in me is awakening. It's not even just back to those moments where I wished I could have embraced those moments my mom was trying to have with us, but back even deeper to previous generations that I haven't even met or can't remember because I was so young when they passed. I mean, grandparents great-grandparents I feel them like stirring coming back to life as I'm here you know I mean honestly like everything that you just said like it's so it's actually like 
I keep saying it's so wild, but like even like as you said, like I I, I asked my mom to make meatloaf. I also would say <laughs> shit like specifically meatloaf. I don't know what the fuck it is about meatloaf because I'm gonna be honest with you, meatloaf is kind of disgusting. Like I don't it like. Is. <laughs> and my poor mom made me make meatloaf, but like yeah. obviously she made it like very much so. Like because I had the meatloaf that my mom would make, right? And I never had any other meatloaf, so. I remember trying meatloaf somewhere else and I was like, yo, this tastes like shit. And like the only reason my mom's meatloaf tastes good is because like she put like like red sauce, like you know what I mean? Like she spiced it, like she made mm-hmm. like Palestinian meatloaf. <laughs> That's why that was good. Uh and then I had regular meatloaf and I was like, oh, this is kind of like dry and flavorless and not not very delicious. But she would she would try and like I wanted her to just make me like mac and cheese when now Mm. that I think back to it, I'm like, the reason my mom wasn't making me mac and cheese is because like, she actually put a lot of time and effort Mm -hmm. into the meals that she made. And mac and cheese is usually not, is made usually out of like practical. Like it's, Mm. takes less time. It's quick. It's easy. It's fast. You don't need a lot of fresh ingredients. And like my mom is out here making like elaborate dishes with all types (laughs) of vegetables and like, you know what I mean? And I'm like, she was like trying to make me something special. And I'm just like, make me mac and cheese. And like, yeah, mac and cheese is good. But like, there is an art to other dishes and they're just, I'm sorry, there's no art to making mac and cheese, like at all. Mac and cheese is like, struggle food i would say like mac and Uh, cheese is what i make when i have no time yeah i understand and you know it's crazy but it feels so weird to say because maybe this is something that i'm overthinking or something but i'm in a place right now where i'm actually struggling to make peace with those moments especially i feel like there's just when i when we're in the car and haram she's playing this music whatever music and this was her only connection to her homeland you know like she's living in the middle of suburban north carolina around some racist ass white people and none of her family are here and her kids speak english and are very american you know and so this was like her connection and we would we would just tell her like mom this sucks put on the radio and she would always uh, you know oblige and I feel guilt. I feel this immense guilt. And as a child, you don't know any better, but you still right. look back and you're like, oh my God, I was such an asshole. And, and I wish that I had seen the beauty. And so I'm, I, I, it's crazy at 25 right now, I'm struggling to make peace with that immense guilt that I couldn't connect with my mother. And I, I didn't want to embrace my Arab and Palestinian roots. Do you understand? I, 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 I can't, I can't begin to tell you how much I understand that because I mean, I, I am the youngest of six children Mm. and, you know, at the end of the day, my parents, it's crazy because I never even thought they were as cultural as Mm. other parents because, Mm. you know, I never saw them do Depka. Like, it's so stupid, but like, I still didn't fully even understand, but like, I think they, they definitely felt probably like a lot of times that they were not good parents. And it was because I would say things like that. And I, I do feel guilty about it. And I, this is something that I've been struggling with for a while. And, 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 and it's something that I feel like now I, now that I realize it and, or in recent, 
I'm going to be honest, like recent years, like this, I've only realized this quite recently. And I feel like they don't hold it against me. I was just going to say, and I'm like, how can you not be, I don't know, feel some type (laughs) of way, but they don't like, and I'll say things to my parents now. And like, and I love Fedus. Like, but Mm. again, when I was younger, I thought it was weird and annoying and I didn't understand mm. why every Sunday mm. morning my dad would listen to Feiruz and sing songs and my mom would make a uh, sharia, which is like angel hair with like cinnamon. It's like a breakfast dish. I don't even know what Arab culture it's. I don't think it's a Palestinian thing. I think it might be Egyptian. I'm not 100% sure. No. I don't think it's Palestinian, but my mom would make that and I would kind of be annoyed because I'm just like why can't you make pancakes like you know what I mean like like why and and my poor mom like she just she would make pancakes but now that I think back I'm like she was just straight up making uh, a thayif like she was just (laughs) (laughs) making like a thayif pancakes um but like you know they don't hold it against me they don't make me Mm -hmm. feel bad for it I think they really understood like my child is going to school. She's being exposed to all of these things. She's watching cartoons. She's absorbing all of these things around her. And they really understood that I just didn't know any better. And as I get older and I appreciate all of these things, I also think I expected them to be more hyped about it. Mm. And they're just, they, I think they make them happy, <laughs> but I, it doesn't make them as happy as I thought it would make them. Like I thought like uh, once I started embracing it in a deeper way that it would just make them like overjoyed. Yeah. And my mom is just kind of like, I mean, that's cool, bitch. But like, you're, <laughs> you're, you're still an annoying little American child. Just FYI. Like at the end of the day, like no matter how much I feel like, and and that makes me sad in ways because I'm like, no matter how much I learn to appreciate my culture, I'm still always going to have this very American culture that is embedded in who I am. And there is nothing I can really do about that because oh, yeah. it really is, it really shaped me as a human and the way I perceive things. Mm. And you can't, I think people can grow and learn and change, but there's also limits to that. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I know you have to be true to yourself. I feel that here. I mean, I've been here four and a half years now. And like we were talking earlier about the gap, like I'll be sitting with some people and all of a sudden they'll be like, do you remember that cartoon from when we were kids? And of course we grew up on like SpongeBob and yep. I don't know what cartoon they're talking about. I only watch Space Tune in the summer mm-hmm. here, you know. Same. Um, yeah, exactly. Like Ben and or not Ben and Jerry. <laughs> yeah. Tom, Tom and Jerry. <laughs> Tom and Jerry, but in Arabic, which is a much different vibe, I would say. It's like, and it's just like, what the actual fuck is going on between Tom and Jerry? Right? Tom and Jerry in Arabic is truly, truly epic, I would say. Oh my say. gosh. Yeah, you have to see SpongeBob dubbed in Arabic. It's so funny. I mean, but listen, yeah, the Simpsons in Arabic was the most mind blowing thing I've ever seen in my life because the Simpsons in Arabic is a completely different narrative, I would say. I can't. I honestly, I can't imagine it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just not even the Simpsons. It's just straight up a whole different show. Um, but no, yeah, I mean, it's there is just so much that you don't know about or 
have the opportunity to even be exposed to no matter mm-hmm. what, because you're still living the most of your life outside of Palestine. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but I, I did want to ask, so you've lived in Ramallah for, I think it was four and a half years. Mm-hmm. What, what inspired you or what was the, what made you decide that this was something that you felt like you needed to do? Well, when I first moved here, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I moved here because it was my choice. Um, and you know, I, I was young, I had graduated university very early. So I graduated with my bachelor's in two years and not four. And so because I did that, I was like 20 or 19 when I graduated. And my dad was like, and at that point, my mother and all of my siblings had moved here to Palestine. And so when I graduated, my father was like, you need to move to Palestine. You need to be with your family. And I had no plans of that. I was thinking of like, I was romanticizing moving to New York and becoming like a curator at an art museum. And so I was really shocked, jarred, like, I don't know stunned I was stunned yeah. when he told me like no you need to go back to Palestine and, and yeah. so I think I, I guess I feel some shame in telling that story because I feel like at so many years later as someone who is who who values her freedom who values her own decisions and who wouldn't do something like that now I think that it's not so romantic to say like, well, my dad made me, you know? And, um, but what is crazy is two years in, I decided to move back to the U S and I, I was studying my master's degree at Duke and I hated it. Oh, wow. Out. Yeah. <laughs> I, hated it and I, I also out. just want to point out, I'm like, so you're just like super smart also. Like, just, <laughs> no. like, like you graduated your undergrad in two years and then you got accepted into a Duke master's program. So she's smart, smart. Oh my gosh, stop. No, it was a yeah. liberal arts program. It's fine. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, I reject not, that. Wait, I'm sorry. And that's not to say like it was... Um, it's a lesser than program. I No, it's... But I also that, like... <laughs> I, I know that it's probably... Like, I, I already know what's happening. I'm like, you just maybe have a little bit of a... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Oh my God, my brain is not functioning. But I know that sometimes when I achieve things that are cool and someone tells me that they're cool, I'm just like... You, like, play it down. It's not cool. And you're not even doing it to be humble. Like, you literally... What is it called? Fuck. Oh, the word is escaping me. Oh, my God. I talk about this a lot. I don't know. It's going to come to me. I feel like people are screaming it right now because they know... It's that complex that you have where, like, you're in denial about, like, your achievements. Fuck, what is it called? I don't know. I have no idea. If I, if I, I wish I could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. If it pops back in. Yes. Say it. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, you're right. I am doing that. I, I do that a lot. <laughs> um, I, women do that a lot. I think we, we just are, society has really ingrained it in our mind to just downplay anything we achieve ugh, or absolutely. else we're, we're stuck up, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We're cocky. But yeah, so I got into the program and then I hated it and dropped out. And at that point, I didn't have to move back. I just could not stand being away. I missed it so much. And I missed it more and more every day. And so I moved back. (laughs) And and I'm proud to say that that was my own decision. And it was the best decision I I, could have made, you know. And I... 
It's nice to hear, though, that, like, ultimately you did make the decision, you know, even though the first time it wasn't completely your decision. And and I, I understand why that would make you feel that way. I feel like I would feel similarly because, you know, I think because you're younger than me and I'm thinking back to when I was in my early 20s. Like, if my parents had told me, like, you need to move to Palestine, I'm going to be completely honest. I probably would not have been very hyped about that. I probably would have <laughs> not been like, yeah, that's what I want to do. Um, and, but at the end of the day, it's like, I mean, we've, we've been talking about this. I think it's, it's a common theme. It's like everything really just happens for a bigger reason that we don't oh, yeah. always recognize immediately. And I think that maybe that needed to happen for you to come back for you to, you know, start your master's and for you to recognize that this isn't, this isn't what I want to do. This isn't where I see my life going. And mm -hmm. this isn't what's right for me. And it, it's so scary to make decisions like that, especially when it comes to, you know, your education or your mm. career, all of mm. those things that I feel like there's so much pressure on us to make the smart choice, to make the responsible choice, to make the choice that there is less risk involved to make all of these factors that are forced upon us, everyone, you know, and it's making decisions like that is really scary. And, mm. and I think something that makes it less scary is when you just know so much, like, I just need to be here. This is where I just, mm. I need to be here. Yeah. And, you know, it's crazy. You can feel in your bones. Like I didn't, and this happens with almost every major decision that I that I make that seems reckless, and you know in your you don't know in your bones that it's gonna be okay. Like you don't you don't know that this is the right decision, but you also know in your bones that you're not happy that this isn't working. And like if you don't make a change, you can't go on. So every time it's just this leap of faith. It's like trusting that gut that you're not happy that gut feeling that you're not happy and taking a leap of faith having no idea what's there but oh my god and you know the crazy part is after every time you make a decision like that the purpose that we're always talking about like everything happens everything has a reason or a purpose it's not immediately clear it's not like you make the decision no. and you're like oh okay cool there it is i feel yep. great now you know it, it takes time and it takes Faith. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it absolutely does, does. It, it's it's not it's not this instant gratification it's like a mm. a labor of love it's like a mm. it's like a very weird thing where you're trusting your body essentially because you're trusting this like gut feeling this intuition this feeling that's not tangible it's not you know something that could be put into words even it's just literally trusting your physical body in that this is what's going to lead you to happiness which is very scary yeah it's but also beautiful it's very that's what I'm saying it's it's beautiful because it's this excitement of a new experience but mm -hmm. it's also this at least for me there's always this I'm a I'm a nostalgic person so there is this lingering sadness that I feel where it's like letting go of my what has been a source of comfort that maybe is no longer a source of comfort, which that's also, mm -hmm. I think, so hard if you are like me, who doesn't like taking risks 
And I am very much so like a creature of habit. And I am very much so someone who does find so much comfort in the familiar. Mm. And so it's, I think it's scary for anyone, but also there are some people who like taking risks. So Mm -hmm. it might be a bit of an easier transition. I don't know who the fuck these people are because life is terrifying, but it's also, it's exciting. It's undeniably exciting. Like you're making this big change. And if that means moving or whatever, like it's just, but when you know it and when you feel it and Mm -hmm. I think it's so important to honor that feeling and to go with it and, and like, I can't even tell you, I'm like, I think that it's, this is going to sound so fucking lame, but it's so brave that you did that. Like genuinely, truly, that's, that's a big, that's a big decision to make to, to, you know, decide to move back to Palestine. And, you know, when you moved back, did you know exactly what you wanted to do when you moved back? Or were you just like figuring it out? Oh my God, I was fumbling. And I, I was fumbling, I think, in the way that a lot of people do. Like, I, I'm sure you remember post-grad. Mm-hmm. Like, after you're just... Your whole life since preschool has been structured. Like, every year you have a schedule and classes. And then everyone is holding your hand. And then you're just dumped onto the real world. And they're like, great, good luck. And I was doing that. But I was also doing it in... It's weird. I'm going to say a foreign country because it was to me. But it was also my country. So I was, yeah. I was struggling with reconciling my attempt at reconnecting with my I, one half of my identity and at the same time I was trying to like figure out what my career was and 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 trying to have a job and pay rent and all those things I was fumbling I was lost for like I would say a, a, a long, I mean to an extent I'm still lost but I was really lost <laughs> I, I mean aren't we all aren't we all just lost yeah. you know I'm like I'm listen I'm like I, I I would love to find someone who's like no I know exactly where my life is going and I know exactly what's going on like I, I don't be around that kind of person oh my god <laughs> like, that's what I'm saying I'm like I've ne- I don't even I've never met anyone who just feels very like it's there is I think we're all like life life is hard. Um, and it varies in difficulty. And, and, you know, I, I, I had posted something recently complaining about, um, something that happened to me that I think is like objectively a stressful situation. And it was crazy how many people were like shaming me for it because they were like, you're going to complain about this very, like, you know, your problems are relative. And, and I think that, you know, obviously, all all things in life are very relative to what your experience is and all these factors, but it doesn't make it less of a problem, mm-hmm. you know, it just because relatively speaking, it's not the worst. And like, you know, even for us to say, oh, like, we're lost in life, like to some people, they might view that as a privilege thing to feel, because they're yeah. like, you know, you know what I mean? But it's just, I think, so many of us do feel that way. But again, there is this weird shame and trying to connect where shame starts and ends is so difficult Mm. because if it's not through the way you were raised, it's through your environment, it's through your friends, it's through Mm -hmm. all of these different ways that shame plays a role in our life. And like, 
really dissecting why you feel that shame is also, I think, unpacking a whole fucking just lots to unpack. And I tell this to everyone. I think we've all experienced childhood trauma. Every human being has to a certain Mm -hmm. degree. And like really taking the time to like investigate why you feel certain feelings, especially shame related feelings. Mm -hmm. That in itself is, is a whole fucking thing. It's, it's just understanding why, like, you know, why I would even feel ashamed to say, like you were saying, like, oh, I didn't really want to move there at that age. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to move to Palestine. That why do you feel that shame in in that and feeling that, you know what I mean? It's all of these different things. It's, I feel like maybe I'm digging a little too deep now, but I'm just like, I think it's something to reflect on. And I think it's something that a lot of us just go through life accepting that this is how I feel and this is how things are. Mm-hmm. And we don't always think, well, why do I feel this way about this? Right. You know, do yeah. I feel this way because I fundamentally think that I should feel this way? Or mm-hmm. is it because I've just absorbed these experiences from around me and then internalize them. And then they have just turned into weird fucking opinions. I don't know. I'm clearly having like a mental breakdown. So (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that anything I'm saying makes any fucking sense right now. No, I know. Okay. Well, you're making sense. Everything you're saying about needing to be asking these questions about these feelings because they hold us back. Yeah, I recognize that my feelings of shame and are holding you back. And you know what's interesting is at le- we also need to recognize when we're feeling it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us go through life trying to figure it out and we don't even know that we're feeling things, um, feeling certain things. So the fact that you're even aware of it would be such a huge step. And Listen, then you do the digging. It's so crazy how growth as a human is so hard it's just like everything about it it's so fucking emotionally draining but at the same time like you were saying there is always a bigger reason there's a bigger purpose there's I don't believe that we are meant to just continuously suffer you know I think I really do feel very strongly that, you know, suffering is not for nothing. And I often think about that. And I think about why the people in Palestine are suffering and what, you know, they don't deserve that. So why are they, why is this happening to them? Why do they have to suffer? What is the reason? What is the bigger purpose? And that's something that I find that I think about often. And I've been thinking about more often recently is like, why do the people of Palestine continue to suffer? Why isn't something happening to change that? And, and I, that also messes with the way I view these things because I'm like, is there a bigger purpose? Like, you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like this very, and like, is it even insensitive to think that there's a bigger purpose they're suffering because I Mm -hmm. am not directly suffering. You know what I mean? Like, or maybe it's just, there are so many layers. And that's the thing. It's like, even as I said that, I'm like, well, technically I I am kind of directly suffering because I don't live in my land because of what's happening. 
That's mm. the reason why I live here. And that has been a cause of a lot of struggles for me as a person, as a Palestinian Muslim person living in America. It's just undeniable that that creates a lot of obstacles for me. Right. But then it's just so much different than people, Palestinians who live on the ground, the obstacles that they face are just similar in a lot of ways, but also different in a lot of ways. I think that realizing that Palestinians who live on the ground experience discrimination, that is a huge part of what's happening. A huge part of the Zionist regime is discrimination, just straight up fucking discrimination against a people for not believing in the same thing or not being of the same. You know what I mean? And it's like, when you really understand that, it's like, we're just experiencing as Palestinians discrimination in different forms, regardless of where the fuck we live. And that is also just, just, uh, yeah, kind of a huge bummer. That's a deep, yeah. Well, it's deeply sad. I, I, this discrimination, you know, living under apartheid, um, it's difficult, but, um, you know, for example, I I mentioned earlier before we we were chatting that I had um, recently ended it with my my partner, and you know what's so crazy is one of the biggest um, like obstacles in our partnership was that he was a blue ID and I'm a green ID, and the continuous. Like the treatment that I experience because I have, I am a Palestinian. Oh my God. I mean, it just, it is such a deep sadness and a deep frustration that I think that I'd never, I'd never felt, you know. But at the same time, I was talking to a friend of mine today from Lebanon and, and she was saying that it's about this balance. Like for her, she to keep herself sane and to keep herself happy and able to keep going. I mean, she has this balance, being able to enjoy also the beauty. I mean, I I love Palestine because there's so much beauty. I mean, I'm talking to you right now from my from my office and I, I was able to watch the sunset over the beautiful old homes and the red tiles and the, the green trees. And Oh my God, it was such a colorful sunset. And I think, I mean, and I'm not saying a sunset is going, I think, Oh, I think that was the Adam going off. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I'm not saying that a sunset is going to make it okay that I was turned back at the checkpoint and couldn't see my partner. But it definitely helps helps us helps me keep going. You know, it's about no. finding that balance. And I, again, like it's the way nature. I think makes you feel. Mm. I don't know. I I feel very much so that in order to exist and have some joys in your life. You have to, not to sound like a fucking cliche, but you have to appreciate the fucking sunsets. You have to appreciate (laughs) the beauty around you. And like, Mm. especially, I think, you know, my mom says this all the time. She was like, I understand why these people want our land. I get Mm. it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But, But you know what? It's like, they can take it 
and they'll never be able to have the same connection right. to it that Palestinians just inherently have. I mean, and mm-hmm. we have always had, I mean, we could, I mean, we we could end up with like one acre of land yeah. and that connection yes. that we have with that one acre will outshine like they could take the whole world and they would never be able to have that connection. I mean, it's embedded in every element of our culture and our identity from the food to the songs to our, our, our harvest and our, I mean, it is this like reverence that we have this like, like I felt like submission to it. I felt loved by it. I, mm-hmm. I and mean, it's, yeah. It's it's even as you're saying this I'm like I think back to even just something as simple as what kind of produce my parents bought as a child. Mm. As a child I I don't think there's a deeper meaning to my parents buying produce. As an adult I understand that there is a deeper meaning. There's a reason why my mom loves figs. There's mm. a reason why my dad loves citrus. Mm-hmm. He there is a reason because yeah. in Gaza, he grew up with citrus orchards all around him. Mm. They would just go and they would go to these fields full of orange trees and, and, and all of these different citrus. And, and that's to him, a connection to Palestine. And my mom mm. has so many childhood memories tied to fig season and yeah. watermelon season and, and all of these things. And it's, it's also like the way, my dad is, he won't just eat any citrus. He is mm. particular because he is searching for that, that flavor that reminds him of his land because it means that much to him. Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's really, like you said, it's no matter how much land they take, they won't appreciate it or oh, love it yeah. or feel that way. Because I've heard... I'm sure you experience this probably living in America. So many people tell me about, oh, I went to Israel and this and that. Just growing up, you meet these young Jewish kids and they they don't know. They literally don't fucking know. And they'll tell you about when they went to Israel and what they liked about it. And the way they talk about it versus the way I've ever heard a Palestinian talk about mm. it, it's just not the fucking same. They'll oh, be yeah. like, oh, the, the beach is beautiful. The nightlife is so amazing. The men are so attractive. Like that's, those <laughs> oh, are, God. those are, that's what I hear. That's literally what I've always heard <laughs> is my friends being like, oh yeah, like um, the nightlife is fun. Da, 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 da. My parents, my mom would literally just tell me she was like the beach the mm. the valleys the mountains mm. the the land itself that is that is what what she appreciated that is what mm. she loved it's not it's not even about the people it's not about the place it's not like a you know a, a restaurant it's mm. just the land right. just the air just right. the trees and it's like that deep connection to the land in a way that I don't think they can ever fully appreciate. Oh yeah. They can't even pretend they have it. I mean, it's, they mutilate the land with no remorse. I mean, you can like this, the apartheid wall, the way they set fire to olive groves, the way that they have just destroyed so much to build this pseudo nation. I, Oh my God. The way that they've polluted the, 
um, Tabaria, the lake, um, the way that they've just almost completely depleted the Dead Sea because of the way that they're draining it. I mean, I could go on and on. They yep. will just never have, and I can't even pretend to have that same connection. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's so, it's such an interesting, like, I think observation to like, you know, I think that as humans, we are very much connected mm. to the earth. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just so clear. It's so clear. It's so obvious. And then you hear, obviously not on mainstream media, because I think Israel definitely doesn't want this to be publicized, but you hear about all these landfills that are happening in land that's occupied by Israelis Mm -hmm. and how literally the earth is straight up rejecting them. Just Mm. that's, there's no way around it. Like the land is literally rejecting them. And it's like, why isn't that happening where Palestinians live? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it's just, why isn't that happening to them? Why is the earth not rejecting them? You know? And it's even, that's what I'm saying. I think that the connection between earth and humans is, is this very beautiful thing. And again, you appreciate it more, the more you learn and the more you experience and the more you understand and where we are located can really change how we feel because if we're not in the right place, everything around us isn't right. Oh, yeah. My my connection to the land didn't really blossom until I moved here. I mean, actually, even this year, it blossomed. And um, I, I'm a, like, I love farming now. Um, I'm part of a community farm here in Little Mullah. I love this connection that I that I've been able to start fostering with the land and I've never even I've never had it to this extent growing up in the U.S. I think obviously the U.S. is a big place and it depends on where you grow up but I I think that like the narrative and like mainstream America is very much just not one of respect for mother nature it's just how can we keep expanding how can we keep I hate this word, but like raping the earth yep. to for resources. And then you come here and, oh my God, you're learning about the traditions and the stories and the songs around just, for example, just harvesting olives has countless songs and traditions yep. and families, yep. entire families come together and, or even the purple carrot, the purple carrot is such a big deal, you know, and every food, every food, herb, plant in Palestine has this inextricable connection with our history and our heritage and it just comes alive here in a way that it didn't come alive in the U.S. you know it's I was interviewed like and this is a I must have been maybe 24 or something I was interviewed by Into the Gloss and I remember being really excited about it that's so cool yeah, I remember this. It was very exciting for me and it was a huge deal. And And they asked me about early memories of like skincare and stuff. And without a doubt, the first thing that popped into my mind was olive oil. Mm. My mom would take us out of the bath and put olive oil all over our body. 
instantly like and 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 I didn't I didn't think anything of it I was just like yeah you get out of the bath you put olive oil on, like, and and then throughout my life like oh I have you know dry cuticles olive oil my hair feels dry olive oil like it was very much so just this very normal thing so I said my first one of my earliest things is my mom and olive oil and till this day people will message me and be like reading that you were the first person that I've ever known who lives in America, whoever, who, who grew up with their mom putting olive oil on them. And like, and there are these young, you know, Palestinian girls or whatever, who, who come across this by chance and they read it and they, they feel seen or represented in some way. And like things like that really do just continuously reinforce that although social media and all these things can seem so vapid and they can mm. seem so pointless. Mm. There is, you, you can produce very vapid content. You can do it. Mm-hmm. It's possible, mm-hmm. but you can also put things out that make people feel that way. And mm. even for me, just knowing that other people had this experience is nice. It's this it's this feeling where it's like, we are all connected, regardless, Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're still Palestinian, no matter where we live or where we are, we're not all going to be exactly the same. But there are so many of us that grow up with these random things like your mom using olive oil to treat Mm. I would get a bug bite and my mom (laughs) she would put vinegar on it she would she put vinegar but then she would also put olive oil on it and like It's just all of these little things that you grow up and you don't understand and you don't appreciate. And you're like, why can't you just fucking, you know, put, I don't know, like regular lotion on my body or whatever the fuck. And it's like growing up and really appreciating that your mom did that because now, you know, like, no, olive oil is low key the fucking best thing to do. And that's where it's at. That's where it's at. And like, just the... I don't know that I've ever said anything that has resonated with that many people, which is crazy to me. Because in that moment, I didn't even, I thought nothing of it. All Mm. I knew is that I wanted, I will say, I did want to consciously mention being Palestinian because even Mm. though I wasn't as well versed in what is occurring in Palestine, like we've been talking about, I've always felt a very deep connection to Palestine. And over time, Mm. it's, it's grown and it's evolved Mm. But even then, when that connection wasn't as strong, and I wasn't nurturing it as much, and I wasn't investing in it that much, it was still very much so a part of my identity. And I knew that it was important that I I needed to make a point to mention it, I needed to find Mm. a way to somehow on into the gloss mention that I am Palestinian, I knew it, it was just, how can I fit this in? How can I how, how can I make it clear to everyone who sees this that I'm a Palestinian and I'm here and I exist and I and I didn't think it through that well you know what I mean you don't realize that that's why you're doing it and I think back and I'm like no that's exactly what the fuck I was doing I just didn't have the critical thinking skills at the time to recognize that that's what I was doing I just Mm. thought no I want to mention that I'm Palestinian but I'm not I don't fully understand why. I just know that I have to. Yeah. Well, whether conscious or unconscious, that's a that's a moment of power. Like claiming 
claiming yourself adamantly and unapologetically, yeah. that's a moment of power. That's pretty cool. And, really and it's, beautiful. it's beautiful. And it's even reclaiming the way I say my name. That's something that I've been working mm. on pronouncing my name correctly because my whole life, I say my name is Noor and everyone's like, what? So <laughs> I, I say my name is Noor and you can hear even in the way that I say it, there are two very different names mm -hmm. and one of them is just not my name. And the other right. one is my name and yeah. training your brain to know how to say your name is a very weird thing that I didn't expect to have to do at the age of 32. Oh my gosh. But you know, that's also something to be proud of. Like, um, I experienced that when I was living in the U S like watering my, like literally diluting my identity so that it was white enough and palatable mm -hmm. enough for whatever white person was like I was interacting with. So whether it was changing the way my name was pronounced or how I was speaking, like my vocabulary or whatever it was, that's huge that you're like, no, 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 no. I'm not diluting this i'm not changing yep. this i'm not altering it this is a full package yep if you like it you can stay if not bye-bye yes. you know and i i just wish i could like go to the younger me because we were talking <laughs> you when you mentioned shame i i'm ashamed of a lot of things that i've done in regards mm. to my identity and in and making it more palatable and thinking that i would I don't know what I thought. That's the other thing. I'm like, what was I trying to achieve? What was I trying to do? What was I trying? Who was I trying to prove something to someone? Was I trying to prove something to myself? What was the point of all of these things that I did? And unfortunately, when I think back to it, I think it was more so just being aware that in the society I lived in, there were certain things that were acceptable and, uh, that people enjoyed and being so aware that being an Arab is an undesirable thing to be in America mm -hmm. and being a Muslim is an undesirable thing to be. And, mm -hmm. you know, people will fucking argue this, which is crazy to me, but Islamophobia is very present mm -hmm. in American culture and, you know, people are like, oh, well, it started, uh, you know, because of September 11th, but it's, it's always been there. Mm -hmm. You know, you watch movies, American films, and the Arab person is always portrayed as a villain mm -hmm. every fucking time. And it, cause it, because it didn't start then it's been very prevalent that just gave racist people more ammo and right. more of a feeling of, no, I, I can, I can hate this person and it's okay because look, they're a bad person. And, no. and I think whether or not a lot of us realize it living in the diaspora is like, those are things that we internalize. And I think unlearning is something that a lot of us are doing right now. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful process because through unlearning, like you were saying earlier, it's like people either like it or they don't. And mm -hmm. that is very much so like my approach now. It's like, I'm going to be myself. And if my friends feel like I am changing, 
and they don't like it, then that's not someone who needs to be in my life because at my core, this is who I've always been. I just needed to take the time to see it and nurture it. To be proud of it. Yeah. To second guess any part of yourself. Um, And not to be afraid that if you are yourself and someone doesn't like it, that they're going to walk away like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that we were ever even afraid of that. Like, if someone doesn't like you for who you are, oh my gosh, like, hi, or goodbye. And then like, hello to anyone else that could come into your life. Yes. That can fill the space that you're opening up, you know? Yeah. Oh, and that's, what you're describing, I think, is a type of liberation. I think it's like you've described this system under which we suffer, whether it's like racism or Islamophobia or and just that simple act, like on a micro scale of like claiming yourself, it's liberating and it almost mm-hmm. terrifies the system, you know, because yes. it's not they're not getting to you anymore. I can I can tell that certain people around me are a little scared because <laughs> because they feel like since when do you care about how people pronounce your name since mm-hmm. when do you care about x y and z since and i'm like i've always cared i just mm-hmm. i didn't i didn't know how much i did or i didn't mm-hmm. or that's a feeling that i had pushed so deep down that i could ignore it and you learn it at such a young age, especially if you're, I was born in America, you know, and, and no one ever said my name, right. Except for my mm-hmm. dad mm-hmm. and my mom. And it's funny because my sister and I were talking about this and my sister's name is Reem, Reem. And when I talk to her in English, I call her Reem. And when mm-hmm. I talk to her in Arabic, I call her Reem. Mm-hmm. So when I talk to her in Arabic, I instantly pronounce her name the way it's meant to be pronounced. And mm-hmm. when I talk to her in English, I'm so used to saying it the American way, the white way, the the palatable way, which it's like, that shouldn't exist. I'm sorry. That just right. should not have to fucking exist. And mm-hmm. I vehemently reject it at this point in my life. And And that is a threat to a lot of people. And that is scary to a lot of people because they recognize that I'm not letting them have that power anymore over my identity and the way Mm. I express my identity. And Mm. I think whether or not a lot of white people realize it, that is a threat to them because they are so used to being dominant Mm -hmm. in some way shape or form and Mm -hmm. controlling the narrative and controlling what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and what's progressive and what's not and I think growing up is realizing that that's fucking bullshit and oh yeah not one race or one type of person gets to set the standard for what is acceptable you know oh yeah a hundred percent oh my gosh yeah I stopped Um, believing in the idea of universality a long time ago. Just as many different types of ways of being and thinking can exist, the better. Yes, absolutely. And that's, and that's not even to say that one way is right and one way is wrong. It's just like, this is what's right for me. Mm -hmm. And if something is right for you, go for it. Mm -hmm. This is just what's right for me. And, you know, 
you can feel that something is right and something is wrong. And it doesn't mean that you need to criticize other people. You just can control what you do and what how you live your life. Um, but I do want to ask because I feel like we completely went off a whole tangent. I already knew this was going to fucking happen, but I do want to ask a little bit about um, Null Collective, which is incredible. And I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about that, which honestly, I'm like, I feel so bad. We're like an hour, over an hour into oh this and I haven't even brought it up and I do want to talk about it, but was it initially called Baby Fist? Yeah. Yeah. It was. Okay. Cause I was looking online and I was like, wait, is there a separate, a separate brand or was it, did it transition? So talk to me about the, 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 how Baby Fist came to be and then, you know, where it went from there. Well, um, it's been such a, like, a packed journey. There have been a lot of stops on the journey, and it's been a violent metamorphosis. And as I have grown, the brand has grown, which is why, if you've been following me from the beginning, and there are, like, a small number of people who who knew baby fist from its early days and who are still with us now um, as Noel and you would see that it looks nothing like absolutely nothing like it did when I started it. I don't know, like three or four years ago. Um, And that's how it should be. I used to be maybe, I don't know if I was ashamed here because here's that word again, but I am so proud that it looks so different because Oh my god! You should never stay the same person. First of all, if you aren't growing, there's something wrong. Like if you aren't changing, a thousand percent, <laughs> a thousand percent. Yeah. So as I've changed, the brand has changed, and I'm very proud of that. Um, but it started off initially because I was just interested in having conversations about important issues, and you know what those issues are might have shifted over the years as I've as my thinking has changed or like the political situation has changed or what have you but um it was first and foremost about forging a space for us to talk about issues and to it and and we do that now through the lens of fashion which I mean I think is something a lot of people who listen to this podcast probably resonates with them because Again, like growing up, being Palestinian, loving fashion, seeing fashion, never seeing myself Mm. in fashion. It's hard when you love something so much and you don't see anything that you can really connect with. It's a really hard thing to to overcome. And it's, it's also undeniable that it does affect the way you feel about your identity and the way you feel about these things. And, you know, when I see Noel Collective, I, I feel like I'm saying it in the most annoying way. How do you pronounce it? Um, in Arabi, like it's yeah. more soft. So it's like Noel. Noel. Yeah. Um, Noel is, it's actually, um, it doesn't exist anymore, like on a mainstream level, but so it depends on who you ask. Some Palestinians or Arabs, it's an Arabic word, but some Arabs based on their age or what their like weird interests might be, 
either would know it or not know it. So younger generation just, I find typically has no idea what a Noel is. Whereas if you ask like my parents, no, um, old generation is very familiar with it. And it's just a hand loom. It's a manual hand loom. And that's why this generation has largely no idea what it is. Because it just hasn't, it's not, we don't use it anymore. I actually like, as soon as you told me what it is, I'm like, I have heard this word before. Oh yeah. I've heard, I have heard this word before. I've heard it from my grandma oh. and I've heard it from my dad. Oh and it yeah. Just, You're the so yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Reza had such a, was a center, a hub of yes. weaving. You, yes. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I've heard it from my mom. I'm like, cause my mom does crochet. Like she does all of these things. Like she does, she grew up doing it. Like mm. she doesn't do it as much anymore, but like it was such a big part of their lives. And a lot of people, that was how they sustained their life. Mm. Um, and so that's so crazy. Cause I'm like, it's just not a word that I've heard that much, but like, as soon as I was like, no, I know that word. And my parents have used it. And I feel like they've actually been like, what is that? I've asked them like, well, what does that word mean? And they told me, but because I don't hear it that often, mm-hmm. it just, it does, didn't immediately like click in my mind. And I was like, no, I have heard this definitely mm-hmm. before. So that's yeah. really, that's another weird thing. It's like, I speak Arabic and I forget words and things all the time because I don't hear it all the time. Yeah, 100%. It's not a commonly used word in like our contemporary vocabulary, but it also depends on where you are. So, you know, like your Razawiya, Razit is one of the only places left in Palestine that uses Nol, or yeah, that uses the Nol. And even within Razit, it's a very small community that are like carrying on the tradition of making it's like a specific type of fabric that's um native to the Gaza area but they're the ones who are like carrying on the tradition beyond I feel like that bubble it's not as commonly known um and that's also like that's what I'm saying I'm like the more I learn things the more I'm like no like this is why my parents this mm-hmm. is why this they brought this up which again I wouldn't know otherwise like I don't know a lot of things. I'm like, I don't know if this is like a Ghazawi thing. I don't know if this is like a Palestinian thing. I don't know if this is an Arab thing. I don't know the root of a lot of things that they do, a lot of their traditions. And it's really cool to learn that, no, this is a part of very uniquely their tradition, Mm -hmm. um, which is really, really interesting. But so basically, so you started, you started it as baby fist. You, it evolved into something different and, Basically, you know, I think it's really interesting because I, I read a lot about, you know, what your ethos is and your mission and all of that. And it seems like manufacturing in Gaza specifically, which now I feel like it's making a little bit more sense. But why was that important to you? Well, so actually, just to clarify, we okay. there was a point where we were producing the majority of our clothing in Gaza and now okay. actually the majority is it's like divided up more so we, do, we okay. produce in Ramallah okay. uh, Nablus um, Jenin and like Beit um, which is a small village close to Jerusalem um, but it was initially very important to us to produce there and that was her only connection I mean it was 
it started off because we were interested in making denim jackets and we I guess someone had heard and she reached out to connect us with this factory there and that's how the relationship started and we ended up working together I mean we're still to get like working together it's been three or four years now and I can't believe it it feels like that long or even longer it's been such a journey and I was really adamant about working with them because it was so difficult I mean the things that we were experiencing or that we were seeing while trying to to do the simplest things with the the, the family owned factory were it was just wild these are things that people in the fashion world don't have to think twice about like shipping a shipment of jackets from your factory to your shop okay done cool be should be like that's it if you if i got in the car right now i could get there in like four hours in theory right but it would take sometimes even weeks to get a shipment out of there i mean it was just wildly difficult because of military occupation and the way that our physical space was was divided and Mm -hmm. our movement was inhibited and and for me it was an a means of solidarity of making sure our our relationship stayed strong despite all those obstacles yeah and i think that something that i've recognized in recent years i would say over the last decade as more the more i am emerged into the fashion space and working in that space that the best fashion is fashion that has a deeper meaning Mm -hmm. that has a deeper purpose than just things that we can visually see that we can visually enjoy. And something that I think I really love about what you're doing is that it is very much so like, yeah, fashion is cool and everything, but it's very much so like a political statement, which instantly makes it, valuable in different ways that I think maybe a shirt or whatever that you have might not always have that kind of deeper meaning. And I think it's, it's, it's in that, you know, it's, I would compare it to a similar feeling that not exactly the same, but when you find a really cool thrifted or vintage something, Mm -hmm. you feel this different kind of pride. Mm -hmm. At least I do. Yeah. In that piece, you feel this different when you put it on, it can make you feel some something completely different than what you were feeling before. And I think when you are buying clothing from a brand or from brands that you you understand that they do have this deeper messaging, it makes it that much more special and I think that's how clothing should make you feel all my favorite pieces like my absolute favorite pieces in my closet are either vintage or I've purchased them from Palestinian or Arab owned brands Mm -hmm. hands down like my Mira Adnan blazer I throw it on all the time or like my trashy clothing t-shirt or scarf they're just my favorite pieces um because they were born from these beautiful stories you know I uh, that if like you know what the thing is is every garment has a story 
the question mm-hmm. is what is the story is it a bad story is it a good story if you don't know the story you should be asking why you don't know the story yeah but there's a story and the story always has minimum two elements which are people and land you know yeah it's just a matter of how the story played out for those two elements and I mean I ordered a shirt that was from the recent collaboration that you did with um oh uh, <laughs> with Alvarim and I I literally like I interviewed uh Baba Ibrahim which is what I fondly call him on my podcast and like I love the music, but also like after speaking to him, I'm just like, I want to hug you. I love you. And so oh. when I saw that you collaborated and came out with this collection, I'm pretty sure I was like harassing. I don't know if you're the one managing the social media, but like, I was like, is it, is it sold out? Is it coming back? And like, and like I, there was one shirt and I, I got my hands on it. I did manage to order it because, and like, I, I'm I don't remember the last time I was this level of excited mm-hmm. for an article of clothing. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like it's not just because I've never seen anything like it. And it's not just because it was, you know, produced in Palestine. It's very much so this deeper meaning of the thoughtfulness behind mm-hmm. this. Mm-hmm. This was a thoughtfully made and it was made by people whose views align with my own and I seriously can't I've said this for years voting with your wallet is so important and and it's one thing to to boycott certain brands but it's it's also beautiful to be able to support brands and and put your hard earned money towards someone who's doing something that's for the greater good. There is an indescribable feeling that comes with that, that goes beyond consumerism. It's not, it's, it's, it's something else. And it's, it's something that you can feel good about and it's something that you can enjoy and love. And it's, and it's not even just that it's like, okay, this is also just objectively fucking cool. This is a cool piece. <laughs> like if I saw this anywhere, I would say that's a cool piece. And, uh, and so to, to be able to bring all of those elements together is just really impressive. And uh, I'm just like, I literally, I remember when I was placing the order, just like telling my sister, I was like, I'm so excited. And she was like, Bro, why are, okay. like she's like you're she's like you're you're literally never this excited about shit, and I'm like no, I'm like this is really exciting because this is this means something to me, and it I think to a lot of people, and I think that you've created something really special and really. I think that I hope other young Palestinians see this. And it makes them want to create something. I know that I do. I know that seeing you and and by the way, guys, just random plug. She this woman has done a TED talk, okay? And oh my it's God. excellent. <laughs> and you should watch it. And I'm going to link it in the episode description because the way you seamlessly bring up Palestine and other countries in the world that are suffering and sustainability and you and and the way that you spoke about it was just so well done and I was just like this is amazing this is amazing but I think that 
people like you and the, and what you've put so much time and effort into creating, like it does mean something and, and it, it is inspiring and it, and it does, I think for a lot of people in the diaspora make us feel very connected and also very inspired and very hopeful. And just, it's nice to, to have positive associations with Palestine. Oh yeah. Because there's so many negative associations. So it's, it is really beautiful to have positive associations. And I think that you are definitely, you're definitely creating that and you're definitely your, your hard work and labor is not going unnoticed. Oh my gosh. You're too sweet. Thank you so much. I am proud of this collection. Um, working with Saman was so fun, was so fun. And you know, the piece that you ordered is so special. It really is. I mean, you know the story of Baran you interviewed. Yeah. And like almost an Alwis was the name of the tailor. He yeah. literally a five minute walk up the road, made it in his grand, like his, sorry, his, fa- his father, because he has grandchildren. So it's like a fourth generation sewing workshop that has not moved locations the same one in the same old building in the middle of the old city and he made it there and he made it with so much love and passion and you know what's funny actually his one of his clients he has like he's a tailor and he has like regular clients that he's had for like decades one of them by just sheer coincidence was a member of Alvaraim and so he like he had like come in (laughs) yeah what he had like come in like 30 minutes before I walked in like asking him um to do something on a garment and he was like oh yeah he was just here and I was like what it was fangirling for a moment but yeah so I mean <laughs> what are the chances that's what I'm saying like that's wild I know and the fabric is from the other side like the other way down the road from the shop up there and it just it really felt like all these beautiful parts of the community just kind of came together to make this happen and I cannot describe that that feeling I'm so happy you got one I mean listen I'm happy too because I was like like it kept selling out and I was like no I need (laughs) this I'm like I need this I'm like I know when I'm drawn to something Mm. there is nothing nothing that will stand in my I'm like I will I will fly there I will get this I need (laughs) to wear this and and I just again I I'm very not easily impressed like it's I don't see a lot of things where I'm like I need that but like Mm -hmm. I know it I know when I'm just like no and 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 even without knowing all of these details I it it's crazy how I I felt that without even being aware of that you know what I mean I'm like you can just you know that what you're getting and I you know I think we all are familiar with that feeling of when you make food, when you eat food that was made with love, it tastes different. When you buy clothing that is made with love and made thoughtfully and, and a whole, and a community came together to create something, it, it feels different. It looks Mm -hmm. different. It makes you feel different. And I think those are things that really means something to me. And I think that, you know, there's so much terrible shit happening all the time. And so mm-hmm. holding on to those beautiful moments is something that I think is so necessary for us to, as humans, just fucking survive in mm-hmm. this world where it seems like everything is just fucked up. And 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that just goes back to what we were saying earlier about that balance. You know, you got to mm-hmm. keep your eye open for those, for those beautiful moments or beautiful stories. Um, and honestly, I mean, I could talk to you forever, but I mean, I, I'm like, I feel like this is, feels like a good point to wrap. Um, I, I loved talking to you. This has been amazing. This is exactly what I needed, which is so fucking Mm. weird to say. (laughs) No, it's not. I, I just love talking to you so much and and I'm going to absolutely like, you know, link, um, you know, where people can follow you on Instagram, where people can follow the brand and how they can shop it and everything. But, um, I yeah thank you so much for for doing this and for coming on the show as always guys you can follow the podcast at Arab American Psycho and like I said I'm gonna have everything linked in the episode description and you know support Palestinian brands because there's it's not a fucking it's not just your average consumerism it's special it's different it's 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 something you can feel good about and um you can follow me on Instagram at Nori where uh you know I might I might be losing my mind. I don't know. Who can say? Um, but thank you so much, Yasmin. And as always, guys, uh, floss your teeth, wear your sunscreen. Don't be a fucking asshole. And I'll talk to you next Sunday. <laughs>